Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined again by Dr. Sunil Kamath, a medical oncologist specializing in gastrointestinal cancers. Today is here to talk to us about young onset colorectal cancer in the Cleveland Clinic's new Center for Young Onset Colorectal Cancer. So welcome back, Sunil. Thanks for having me again, Dale. Absolutely. So maybe to start, give us another brief reminder of your role here at Cleveland Clinic. Definitely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm a, a medical oncologist. I specialize in, uh, in GI cancers. Um, I also have, you know, a significant interest in learning to better treat young onset colorectal cancer and also to learn why this is happening and why we're seeing such a massive increase um, in the number of patients affected. All right. Well, you know, we may have a fairly diverse group listening. So maybe just to set the stage, um, tell us a little bit about that, about how colorectal cancer in general, how we're doing and in the youth particularly, like what, what does that look like? What's the magnitude of the problem here? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. You know, we we have seen a general decline in the number of colorectal cancer cases per year overall, and I think much of that has to do with colonoscopy screening, um, detecting polyps and removing them early. Um, but unfortunately, what we're seeing is all of that is occurring in the older population, mostly people who are older than sixty. Unfortunately, for patients under fifty, in particular under forty. Uh, we're seeing a, a significant increase, you know, more than 50% increase in the number of cases per year. Uh, we're currently at uh, 49 new cases a day um, and 10 deaths per day, in particular for the young onset population. Fortunately, many of these are patients who are in their 20s and 30s. Um, and for our center, and I'm sure at many other places as well, 80% of these actually have very young children too. So. You know, in addition to it being obviously a particularly devastating thing for a young person, we're also talking about affecting so many other people um, in these patients' lives. So, I mean, I guess I'll just go with uh, one of the more obvious things up front. 20s and 30s, I mean, it's, it's just heartbreaking to see people coming in with metastatic colon cancer in their 20s and 30s. And, and so, one of the big problems seems to be, who thinks about metastatic colon cancer in a 22-year-old? Tell us a little bit about how, how are we supposed to educate people about the importance of this, even from a, an awareness standpoint? Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, because you're absolutely right. You know, nobody expects this in their 20s and 30s, you know, and I think a lot of it, I think it's really two things. One is educating the general public that this is out there, that so common symptoms, you know, I think that I think are important for patients to know about. You know, certainly blood in the stool, you know, at any time is, is not normal. Um, so definitely you know, seeing your, your primary care doc, or if you don't have a primary care doc, get one. You should have one anyway. Um, and see somebody about that. Um, you know, changes in your stool caliber, if you're finding it's hard to have a bowel movement more so than, than before. You know, I think, you know, all of us, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, all of us can get constipated at time, from time to time. Um, but it's something that's a persistent problem. You know, you shouldn't be constipated for a month straight. You know, that's something that's unusual. So, you know, paying attention to your body and being aware of those um, those symptoms. You know, and secondly, you know, I think we also need to educate ourselves, you know, I think as physicians. You know, the, a lot of the patients that we talk to, if you really get into their, their presentation, 
you find that most of them have actually seen at least one doctor. You know, about 75% have seen at least one physician about their symptoms. Um, I think up to a third even have seen multiple doctors, two or three doctors, about the exact same symptoms that relate to their cancer. Um, so I think some of it is also, you know, us realizing that this is out there and instead of minimizing, you know, and saying, oh, it's probably not nothing, you know, just take a stool softener, or probably hemorrhoids, you know, really investigating it further, taking that next step um, to get a colonoscopy to investigate it fully because it may be something much more serious than we realize. Are patients who are showing up with young onset colon cancer, are they um, showing up primarily with late stage disease? Is it earlier stage? I mean, I'm guessing more late stage because they're not getting screening, but is that is that true? That is true. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the, the numbers vary, you know, it could be anywhere from uh, 25 to even 50% uh, present with late stage disease. And a lot of it is because, you know, they don't have symptoms early or their symptoms are not addressed early enough. Um, and yeah, then they're well below the age of screening. So there's really no opportunity um, to intervene on their cancer at an, at an earlier point. I think I'm sure a lot of it too, you know, they're, they're busy, right? You know, they're, they're parents, you know, and they have busy jobs at the early phases of their careers. So it's easy, you know, to ignore something, you know, and say, oh, it's probably no big deal. I am a little more tired than usual, but I'm busy, you know, with, with work and whatnot. So it's easy to sort of put things off. Um, so I'm sure it's several factors. We'll talk about uh, how the center might impact some of these, these, uh, these parameters in terms of who we look for, who we suspect. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, is there anything obvious, like do most of these patients who are showing up with early onset, young onset disease um, have a family history compared to older patients? Or is there any clue at all at this point and who might be at risk? Yeah, that's been challenging. You know, I think we hope that, you know, there would be a strong indicator but unfortunately, we found that, you know, from a hereditary standpoint, you know, only about probably 20 to 25% have a, a known hereditary syndrome. Probably another, you know, maybe 10% or so have a family history without a known um, genetic mutation in the family. But the vast majority, you know, probably two-thirds or more um, is a completely sporadic thing with no strong family history at all. Um, we did, certainly have seen, you know, some trends... Um, these tend to be left-sided tumors for the most part. Um, there doesn't seem to be much gender predilection. Um, from a racial standpoint, it seems like uh, the rate of rise is the highest in the white population. Um, but actually, if you look at just the proportion of the young onset patients only, it actually seems to be affecting black and Hispanic patients more. Um, so I think that's another important factor for the patients to know and also for us as physicians to realize, you know, to take those symptoms more seriously in, in those subgroups. And so you, you uh, mentioned left-sided tumor. And again, we have a lot of people that might be listening, not familiar. What, what's the importance of that? Yeah, the importance of that is so, you know, the left-sided tumor, so le the left side of the colon is, you know, closest to the exit, so to speak. Um, and it, so it tends to be the rectum and then the sigmoid colon. And the significance of that really is the symptoms tend to be Fortunately, easier to detect. You know, they are more likely to have bleeding as a presentation, um, more likely to have changes with stool caliber or constipation and things like that. Um, so that's the reason I think you know the blood and the stool aspect, especially, is really important for uh, patients to know and physicians to take seriously because those tumors tend to be on the on the left side and the ones where they tend to bleed more. 
So you mentioned before about some uh, some differences based on characteristics of patients. And tell us a little bit about some research you've done in this area. So we fortunately have access to the National Cancer Database, which is a massive database, includes probably 70% of all patients that uh, receive cancer care in the United States. Um, so we looked at their data to, to see, you know, are there any trends in the young onset population compared to older patients, you know, with average onset colorectal cancer. Um, and we found some really interesting things. You know, first thing was we found that both black and Hispanic patients were disproportionately affected in the young onset population compared to, to older patients. Um, and also interestingly, you know, we found that as far as outcomes are concerned, unfortunately, black patients experience worse outcomes compared to the other racial and ethnic subgroups. But what was most interesting was that didn't track solely with socioeconomic status. You know, a lot of other studies have shown that same finding, um, but it really tracked with, with poverty, you know, decreased access to care, um, less education, other markers and metrics that we know affect outcomes. Um, but we didn't really find that. You know, what we found was, so patients that were in lower socioeconomic uh, communities they did have worse outcomes, but that was really consistent across all race, racial and ethnic groups. Um, so that didn't uniquely affect black patients. But what we found actually was in some of the higher socioeconomic communities, um, ones that were better educated, had you know, higher median income, that is actually where the disparity was found, particularly in young patients. And that was definitely a very surprising finding because it was very new compared to pretty much every other study I'd seen looking at this type of question. And so, as any thoughts as to why that might be? And and as I recall, there was some correlation with insurance and and their their access to insurance. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, exactly. This was predominantly seen in privately insured patients. Really, you know, so those who had government insurance or were uninsured. Again, there, you know, the the outcomes were very similar across racial and and ethnic groups. But this was specific, really, to those who were privately insured and. I strongly suspect that does have something to do with access. You know, we're so big on that here at Cleveland Clinic because it matters. If you have good access to care, things happen faster, they happen in a timely manner, and that is so critical uh, for cancer outcomes. So I definitely think, you know, and it's something we don't think about too often. You know, generally we look at private insurance and we say, oh, that, those are the people who are doing well. You know, that's the group we don't need to worry about. They have good access. But really, you know, I think if you think about various plans that are out there, you know, depending on the job you have and which insurance, you know, your particular employer has access to, the amount of coverage you have could actually vary quite a bit. Um, you know, there are a lot of studies out there showing, you know, depending on which, you know, if it's a PPO or an HMO-based type of insurance, you may only have access to one oncologist or one gastroenterologist, and they might be 80 miles away from you, and their earliest appointment might be three months from now. You know, so even though you have what looks like a good private insurance, your actual access to the care you need may not be as good as it seems. So there's been a tremendous emphasis in the past on getting insured and having people insured, but it sounds like maybe the right thing to do is what's the actual insurance. It's not just checking the box that you're insured. So that's, I, I thought that was an interesting finding from that. Definitely. Reshape the, the discussion perhaps. Oh, yeah. I, I think we definitely need to drill down into, you know, what actually is covered. You know, is, is the access to things that people really need actually available? You know, there's a lot of data both, you know, for regular you know, sort of private insurances that you would get, uh, but also for those on the healthcare exchange, you know, through Obamacare. 
Um, so yeah, definitely. I think we need to look into, you know, what are these plans actually covering and are they covering the things that need to be? Well, speaking of access, what a great way to introduce the, the discussion of this new center for young onset colorectal cancer. So um, tell me a little bit about that. What is that? Yeah. So this really started, you know, I think um, because we've collectively seen, you know, just how common early onset and young onset colorectal cancer is, um, it also came, you know, in part from a really generous donation as well. Really, I think what it is, is it's kind of a uniting and of our, of our talents here, you know, from GI to the colorectal surgeons to liver surgeons to us in medical oncology, radiation oncology. It's really getting all of us together um, to, to collectively recognize that this is a huge problem and to dedicate specific resources to it. I think the biggest things, you know, I've seen from the center are having dedicated nurses and care coordinators to help patients navigate their journey through this. You know, I think, because we really need to do three things, I think, in this space. One is, you know, increase awareness um, that this is out there, to have patients be aware that once they're affected, once they're diagnosed, there are centers that have very subspecialized care like us that can help them get the best outcomes. Number two is to improve as far as our, our, our treatment interventions as well. You know, I think younger patients, you know, because they're younger and fitter, uh, they're certainly able to receive more aggressive therapies when a lot of that is, is surgical or radiation and things like that. So I know at a lot of other community centers, you know, they might be told that your disease is too advanced. There's really nothing that we can do except for chemo. And, you know, we know with chemo, you're going to get probably two to three years of survival and that's about it. Um, I think at a center like ours, I think it really gets us to think about more aggressive interventions, you know, even if it's in the liver and in the lungs, you know, maybe we can do an operation to get out all the tumors that are in the liver, but also maybe do radiation in the lungs to take care of everything that's, that's there as well. And three, I think is also, you know, I think to have uh, increased efforts as far as our research production as well, um, because we do know, you know, a small subset of patients who uh, have stage four cancer can actually still achieve a long-term remission. Um, and I think if we're not aggressive about pursuing those avenues, we're never going to identify that, that subset. So one of the strengths here at Cleveland Clinic, we, we've talked on a previous podcast about the Weiss Center and um, hereditary diseases. And um, how is that experience in, uh, in terms of registries being sort of leveraged in this effort? Yeah, that is a critical part of this. You know, I think we have a, a very large dedicated team for biobanking specimens, which I think is such a critical piece of this because we really don't understand yet why this is happening. And that has to be, you know, question number one, really. And I think the way we're going to figure that out is by collecting blood, collecting tissue, collecting stool, you know, collecting specimens from people who are affected um, and studying them, you know, and seeing, you know, are there differences in the patients who have colorectal cancer versus those who don't? Because that's really going to be the way we're going to figure out um, why this is happening and how we can best prevent it. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing really. Also, you know, we have a, a strong backing from our genetic counseling team as well. So I think ensuring patients like, that they get the genetic testing that they should is another piece to make sure we're identifying 100% of the patients who have a hereditary syndrome because that matters as far as, you know, their personal screening, it affects their families and everything. I think that's another critical part of this is making sure, you know, genetic testing is done, you know, both from a hereditary standpoint, uh, but also from the tumor and from, from the blood for circulating tumor DNA and things like that, too. We talked before about just the identification of patients. So 
you know, recent guidelines for screening have shifted to 45. Um, that doesn't help our 20 and 30 year olds, but certainly screening people at 20 doesn't make sense either. So it seems like this is going to be a good way to maybe find some way to identify those who might need screened. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, you know, the other thing that I think uh, we often forget about is people really should also start asking their family members about high risk adenomas as well, because we actually also recommend people who have a family history of high risk adenomas to start getting colonoscopies at age 40 or even 10 years before the age that that adenoma was found. You know, and that's something, you know, I think, I don't know if people are necessarily aware of. A lot of times, you know, that conversation with the gastroenterologist is, oh, yeah, you had a polyp, but we took it out, and you need another colonoscopy in a year, and there's really no discussion about what that means. So I think, you know, there's probably a couple of changes that need to happen there. One is, you know, I think we need to start informing patients that, you know, this was a precursor to cancer, and you probably should tell family about this because it could affect their screening. I think that may be a way to expand our reach to some of these younger patients. Because you're right, we're not going to be able to do colonoscopies in everyone. I mean, I guess what what do we know at this point as we as we start studying this about the disease we do see in younger people? They're younger, they're more fit to get therapies in many cases, but does it seem like the same disease? I mean, do we do they respond similarly to the therapies we have? Um, does it seem like it's really essentially the same type of colon cancer older patients have or are we needing to figure that out as well? It seems like from a treatment standpoint, yes, it seems like the response rates for chemotherapy and things like that certainly seem to be similar. Um, interestingly, you know, from a genomic standpoint, they also seem to be very similar to, uh, to older patients with colorectal cancer. And I think many of us thought we would find some signal that some genetic mutation would be significantly more prevalent in uh, in the young population. And, you know, we've seen some series, you know, our data is showing a, a couple of, of rare mutations that may be more prevalent in, in the young population. But probably a lot of that just comes down to, you know, the small size of these series or single institution series. Um, so, yeah, it seems like from a disease standpoint, they're very similar um, as far as responses and everything. And I do think, obviously, there's something different about um, what's causing them to occur, you know, to occur decades before they normally would. Um, there's some early signals. Um, we're doing, you know, s uh, quite a bit of work looking at the microbiome to see if there's a particular bacterial signature that we can see in the microbiome that's unique to the young onset population. And it does seem to be there is, you know, some unique variation there. The center has been open for a few months now. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about how you've seen a patient that was involved with the center benefit from that interaction? Definitely, yeah. I, I, there's a, a young lady that comes immediately to mind that, you know, just makes me feel good, you know, just, just remembering her case. Uh, she's in her 30s um, from Michigan. She came for here for a second opinion. Um, she had a, originally an early stage uh, colorectal cancer, had surgery and, and chemotherapy afterwards. Uh, unfortunately, recurred very quickly um, in a really difficult location in kind of the pelvic sidewall, you know, deep in the pelvis. Um, so it's a really tough area to operate on, you know, from, from the get-go. So she was told, you know, by her surgeons and everything that this is, this is not operable, probably never will, go on chemotherapy, and, you know, you probably have a few years. So she came, you know, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm in my 30s, I have kids, two kids under five, you know, that's, that's not good enough. 
I said, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's not good enough. So, you know, we, I recommended, you know, a really aggressive, you know, three drug regimen of chemotherapy. Uh, she did great with that. We sandwiched in a little bit of radiation, you know, to this particular area. Um, and then, you know, things seemed to have responded really well. So we said, you know what, you know, we got to take our shot. So we went ahead with, with surgery and it was probably the craziest operation that, that I've ever seen. I think there are at least five or six different surgeons in on this case from colorectal surgery, from vascular surgery, from urology, from gynoc as well. They really did a lot in this, in this case. And fortunately, at the end of this probably five, six hour operation, they really got everything out. There was no tumor left behind. And she's several months out now, no tumor anywhere, uh, not needing any treatment at this point. So, you know, we hope, obviously it's early still, you know, so I, I, I'm always reluctant to use the word cure, but, you know, I'm really hopeful that she's going to stay in a long-term remission. And uh, I know that we made a big difference for her. Excellent. Well, given the uh, sort of the breadth of specialties involved in the center and uh, like you say, from genetics and medonc and all of the different groups, who should come to be seen here? To be evaluated by the center? Who are there particular patients? I mean, clearly younger, but are there particular cases that you think really should make the trip to come here and, and be seen? Yeah, honestly, I think everyone really. You know, I think because, you know, we're fortunate to have, you know, medical genetics for genetic counseling, to have great backup for fertility preservation, for helping with sexual dysfunction due to chemo and surgery psychosocial support, you know, from our social workers, from psycho-oncology here, you know, we have so much subspecialization in addition to, you know, having, you know, more novel and aggressive treatment approaches that I think every patient would benefit. I think in particular, those who have stage four disease um, that are potentially, you know, candidates for resections or things that other centers might not pursue. Um, again, because those could be curative, you know, for a, a subset of patients. And so I think that group, especially, you know, if there's only tumors in the liver, or only a couple spots in the lungs or in a couple spots in the liver or something like that, um, those are patients that we would certainly pursue a more aggressive approach of surgery or mixing surgery with radiation um, to try to get them off of lifelong chemo and maybe get them into, into a, a long-term remission. Well, it's outstanding the work that's being done for the center here. And so I appreciate your insights today. Of course, yeah, happy to talk about it. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.